0: On the record, flips to the B side. With so much focus on conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan and now Liberia, it's easy to overlook the battles we are fighting here in our own backyards. I'm Nia Lobel, and this month on B side, Battlefields at Home. As on the record, flips to the B-side. That is not the sound of machine gun fire. That is a semi-automatic spider, a paintball gun. It was the weapon of choice for me and B-side's Tamara Keith on a recent weekend as we tried our hands at the game of paintball. It turns out there are paintball fields all over the place make believe battlefields where grown men and women and fairly young kids play war. As we drive up to Paintball Jungle in Vallejo, California, we're immediately overwhelmed by the sight of very serious-looking people in full camouflage toting large guns. I honestly, I can't remember the last time I actually felt this scared going into doing something. Like no roller coaster, no job interview. I'm just scared, my heart is pounding. This is worse than public speaking. Tamara and I go up to the counter, hand over our credit cards, and get outfitted with guns, paintballs, and protective headgear.
1: Balls go in there. And then uh, if you shooting, and it does that, this is the caulking mechanism.
0: And this is when we really start freaking out. We don't know what we've gotten ourselves into. That might be how B-Sides' Dave Gilson felt when he signed up to be an embedded reporter, not with the 3rd Infantry Division in Iraq, but with a group of World War II reenactors.
2: A couple of years ago, I discovered that the world of historical reenactment includes a subculture of guys who prefer to spend their weekends reenacting World War II. This intrigued me. So I found a local World War II reenactor named Jesse and gave him a call. I told him I wanted to write an article about him and his buddies. And the next thing I knew he'd invited me to join them for an upcoming battle. He said I could spend the weekend playing a war reporter, tagging along as his unit fought its way across Europe. We'd have a great time, he said. We'd run around in the woods, hang out with the guys, maybe learn a thing or two about the bloodiest conflict in history. What could be wrong with that? The catch was, Jesse and his friends didn't play American GIs. They played the bad guys, the Germans. More specifically, they were the Northern California chapter of the infantry section of the 9th Panzer Division of the Waffen-SS, and Jesse was their leader. The Waffen-SS were known as Hitler's most fanatical, hardcore troops. As a German history professor told me, the Waffen-SS weren't concentration camp guards, but they were the next worst thing. Jesse, however, insisted that he didn't play a Nazi. Instead, he played a character named Joachim, a young sergeant who just wanted to defend his beloved fatherland. With his short, curly blonde hair, blue eyes, and surfer's tan, Jesse fit the part perfectly. On top of that, he was fluent in German. But it didn't stop there. Since he'd started playing Joachim a few years earlier, he'd spent over $4,000 buying every single piece of clothing and gear a World War II German soldier would ever need. Camouflage jackets, wool pants, helmets, even authentic replicas of the very underwear worn by Hitler's army. I wouldn't say I was looking forward to spending a weekend with him. First off, I'm Jewish. If this really were World War II, I wouldn't be chasing Germans they'd be chasing me. But more than that, there is something very, very wrong about people who think it's fun to spend their free time acting like German stormtroopers. Yet Jesse and his fellow reenactors seem to believe that they could become better people, smarter, better informed, even healthier, by following in the footsteps of the same folks who paved the way for the Holocaust. The battle took place on a National Guard base in the Central Valley. I arrived on a Friday evening and was directed to the barracks where Jesse's unit was bunking for the night. The members of Jesse's unit were a motley crew of a dozen or so guys. There was a 40-something dad whose midlife crisis involved tanks instead of sports cars, and a 15-year-old new recruit who thought this was the coolest thing since GameCube. And then there was Bob, the unit comedian, who cracked Hitler jokes and took popular songs and rewrote them with nazi lyrics. Get up, stand up, stand up for the Reich. I was stuck with a bunch of guys who dressed like they were straight out of Schindler's List, but acted like they were in Hogan's Heroes. The next morning, someone gave me a heavy wool uniform and a floppy cap. Jesse lined us up outside the barracks and marched us off to the battlefield. We took up positions behind rocks and trees, nervously waiting for the Russians to attack. Suddenly, the bullets started flying, or at least that's what it sounded like. Even though everyone was shooting blanks, it was incredibly loud. The Russians were getting closer and closer, and some of the Germans around me were screaming and falling down, dead. A few moments later, something flew over my head and landed nearby. The guy next to me told me we'd just been hit by a grenade. We were dead, for the next five minutes or so. By the afternoon, All semblance of order, much less historical accuracy, was thrown out the window. People were running everywhere, screaming and shooting wildly. Occasionally, someone would try to shoot me or pretend to stab me, but once they realized I didn't feel like being cannon fodder anymore, they moved on for fresh blood. When the battle was finally over and we were walking back to the barracks, Jesse asked me if I'd had a good time. I told him that reenacting just seemed like an excuse for grown men to dress up and play war. That seemed to disappoint him. In the end, I wrote my article about Jesse and his friends, and they weren't too happy with it. Over and over, they'd told me that there was nothing wrong with playing a member of the Waffen-SS, that they were amateur historians, not weirdos who got off and dressing up like stormtroopers. But still, they were worried about what other people would think of them, their neighbors and coworkers, and basically anyone with any sense of what World War II was actually about. I knew how they felt, It took a long time before I could tell my grandparents what I was writing about or what I'd done to get the story. But I think that Jesse and Bob and the others actually enjoyed knowing that their hobby made most people cringe. They liked violating this taboo. Being the bad guys thrilled them, just as it probably thrilled the young men who volunteered to fight for Hitler 60 years ago. I last talked to Jesse shortly after September 11th. Now that we were fighting a real war, I wondered if one day Americans would dress up and reenact the battle for Afghanistan. And if they did, would some of them choose to play the Taliban or Al-Qaeda? No way, said Jesse. That's just way too weird. I'm not so sure. They say that those who don't learn from history are doomed to relive it. After my brief, disturbing glimpse into the world of World War II reenactment, I'm convinced there will always be people who relive history and are doomed to learn nothing from it. For B-Side, I'm Dave Gilson.
0: Go. After about half an hour of fretting and practicing with our guns, B-Side's Tamara, Keith, and I are ready to play our first game of paintball. The mock battle is set up a lot like the game Capture the Flag, except instead of tagging our opponents, we're supposed to shoot at them. And of course, they can shoot at us. We need about ten guys who have some experience
3: We go this way and wrap around to cut them off. The One of the more experienced
0: guys on our team starts barking orders, and we decide to follow the crowd. Midway through the game, Tamara gets hit. A yellow paintball splatters all over her goggles, and she has to leave the battlefield. I stay on and keep fighting. In the next game, we both get hit. And it hurts.
4: Ah, hit! Ah. Ow, okay, I'm double hit. Ah.
0: While Tamara and I both come out of it with a bunch of paintball-shaped bruises, we know we'll heal in time, and... I can't believe I'm saying this, but we'll probably go back for more. When it's not a game, the war scars are much slower to heal. Think about post-traumatic stress syndrome or the effects of Agent Orange. And most people don't know this, but more than 50 years after the end of the Korean War, many veterans are still dealing with the effects of frostbite and other cold-related injuries. Lissa Mudd has this profile of one veteran.
5: My name is William C. Boltonweck, 1056807, usmcr
6: That's Boldenweck's serial number from his days in the 1st Marine Division. He was at the Battle at the Chosin Reservoir in December 1950, which is considered one of the most brutal in U.S. military history. 15,000 U.S. troops were surrounded by 120,000 Chinese soldiers in the mountains near the Chinese border. When I met up with Boldenweck, he was nursing a beer in a bar near his house in Daly City.
5: But one thing I still remember, it's, it's, it's like a little symbol to me whenever I talk to anybody about being up there, is uh, the mother and her baby that were lying on the, on the road. They were there when we got there, and they were still there when we left.
6: It was the coldest winter on record in Korea.
5: I noticed that, that all the trees were bare, which is not surprising, but they all, all the, the branches had little silvery fingers on them. Each branch was covered with ice, and i mean, wow.
6: The American troops weren't prepared for the cold. Even wearing all their clothes, many got frostbite. Early on, Boldenweck's hands and feet were so frozen they went numb, and he had trouble moving them. So he was sent to see a doctor at the field hospital.
5: He had me look over at the wall, and he tapped me with a needle in his my toes and fingers, Did and I feel couldn't it? feel anything. So he said... By rights, we should fly out of here. But we can't, so you just have to do the best you can. There are a lot of really bad, hurt people. You know, I'm not bitching about uh, I mean, I've got no complaint.
6: The hospital corridors were full of soldiers with bullet wounds. Many of them were dying. In all, 3,000 troops were killed.
5: So in a situation like that, one scrawny kid with a frozen hands and fingers, doesn't count much. And again, I'm not complaining about it.
6: Instead of getting treatment, Boldenwick was sent back out to fight. He tried to stay warm by rubbing his hands together and wiggling his toes. But he says to stay alive, he had to resign himself to the terrible odds.
5: I survived the war after I realized that I wasn't going to survive. And I quit thinking about it.
6: Ironically, some soldiers survived because the cold literally froze their wounds and stopped the bleeding. Boldenweck avoided being shot, but his cold injuries left him with skin problems and pain and numbness in his fingers and toes that just get worse with age. Some of his war buddies have been less fortunate.
5: I know guys who have had to put sanitary napkins in their sneakers every morning before they go out because their feet ooze.
6: Many of the scars aren't physical. Boldenweck is also plagued by his memories of the
5: battle. That woman on the road with her baby... Probably is gone by now. But uh, she's still dead. So's the baby. Dead babies still get to me.
6: Boldenweck says even 50 years after the war, he still has nightmares about it. But when he got home, he didn't get much help for the psychological effects of his time in Korea.
5: When we came back, We got out in those days. Uh, They didn't have post-battle stress syndrome. We were just a bunch of crazy drunks. Yeah, I'm still a little bit of that.
6: These days, Boldenweck is part of a veterans group called the Chosin Few, all survivors of this historic but little-known battle. They get together and talk about those days and how it changed their lives. And whenever they part, they say to each other, keep warm. For B-Side, I'm Lissa Mudd.
3: You're
0: listening to KALX 90.7 FM. Stay tuned as On the Record flips to the B-side. You're listening to B-side. I'm Mia Lobel, and this month's show is about battlefields at home. At the Paintball Jungle in Vallejo, California, Tamara and I take a break from the game to talk to Magic Carpet Bob, a world champion paintballer and the founder of Paintball Jungle.
5: If you're not getting shot, you're not getting the fun of the game.
0: I definitely got the fun of the game.
5: This is electric (laughs) hide-and-go-seek. How
0: long have you been playing?
5: 16 years. I started as a young boy trying to get a BB gun that my mother wouldn't let me have. And now uh, I'm as excited about the games I play today as I was on the first games that I played.
0: Do you know if anyone here is a veteran from a from
5: a... I'm a veteran. I'm a Vietnam veteran, yeah. I won't shoot people. I just shoot people with paintballs. I was spared anything worse than that in life, thank God.
0: Believe it or not, the U.S. Army uses fantasy scenarios not entirely unlike paintball to prepare real soldiers for real battle. And recently, they've been getting help from Hollywood. In 1999, the Army in Tinseltown teamed up to form the Institute for Creative Technologies. Its job is to take the kind of realism you get in a good war movie or video game and use it to help train soldiers in elaborate simulators. Gabriel Spitzer visited ICT to check out their latest project.
7: You might think war sounds something like this. Well, that's the video game version anyway heard here on my buddy's Xbox in the battle epic Medal of Honor. But in the streets of Baghdad and Basra, war probably sounded more like this. That's the sound of Full Spectrum Command, a cutting-edge battle simulator developed by Hollywood for the US Army. As you can see,
1: there are a lot of birds in the contemporary battlefield.
7: James Corris, a former screenwriter, is creative director of the Institute for Creative Technologies, which designed Full Spectrum Command. It might seem strange that the military is looking to Tinseltown to teach it how to fight, but the point isn't to make war fun, it's to make it feel real. The filmmakers and programmers at ICT think the best way to do that is to stimulate the senses and to create individual characters, more like a movie than a combat simulator. For Full Spectrum Command, Corus and his team had to invent over 200 characters. Those 200 humans have
1: to think and act and behave and have uh, an emotional complexion that's realistic and consistent with what people would be doing in a military engagement. We also have a number of civilians and non-government organizations. So there are these sort of bystanders, even, even reporters. All this
7: character development would make Spielberg proud. Even if ICT leaves out some of the more cinematic nuances. Let's put it this way, we don't have a guy from Brooklyn playing a harmonica, but they're still distinctive. This is a far cry from the way soldiers have trained in the past. Jim Blake is a retired Army colonel who's working on the project.
1: The traditional way would be to sit in a schoolhouse at a desk and listen to an instructor tell you what you should
7: know, tell you what he wanted you to know, and then tell you what you should have learned. Full-Spectrum Command gets the soldier out from behind the desk and immerses him or her in a virtual battlefield. Richard Lindheim is a former Paramount executive. The military has a lot of expertise, and they have very creative minds, but they also like, in some ways, like scientists, think in a disciplined way. The entertainment industry, like it or not, does not think in a disciplined way. They think
3: in a creative way.
7: So Hollywood writers help ICT give the games a kind of realism that doesn't exist in the Army's own training. And some of that realism comes from good old-fashioned literary devices, like having a really nasty villain. We're interested in how do you think and how do you make the right decisions in a crisis situation. Now, a writer approaches that kind of situation by first having to understand who the bad guy is. And then, in many ways, the antagonist comes first. The hero is a reaction to the antagonist. In one full-spectrum command scenario, the antagonist is a shady character named General Marlank. He's holed up in a health clinic, and the gamer's job is to have his platoons storm the building and capture the bad guy. Marlank looks the part.
1: Uh, He looks a little like Sting with less hair.
7: And he also looks like he hasn't had a decent meal in a while. James Corus prepares to walk me through the pre-mission briefing. We take our seats in a room that looks like Nintendo Geek Nirvana. Several rows of theater seats face an enormous video screen. Speakers line the ceiling. A technician mans the controls, and the battlefield materializes on the screen. Our virtual platoons get in position along the edge of a clearing, facing a cluster of buildings. The digital soldiers are about to face the messy reality of war that confronted real human beings in Iraq. Two platoons lay down a line of fire, while a third stalks up to the clinic. Each one of those characters
1: they have an independent intellect. They have to move in a way that resembles a human being. Uh, they have to obey the laws of physics, and they have to follow the rules of military engagement.
7: Both sides are taking casualties. Soon, two platoons get inside the building and start clearing it, floor by floor. This is
1: an example of a of an extremely close fight.
7: In the confusion, the plan starts to fall apart.
1: Okay, we have, uh, we have failed in our battlefield synchronization at this point because we have two units shooting at each other, uh, but we have taken out the enemy.
7: His virtual soldiers nabbed General Marlank, but at a price.
1: I think what you could see in that example is why the close urban fight is so dangerous. People are shooting at each other through floors. It's a messy, messy, nasty place to be. And uh, this game uh, simulates it reasonably well.
7: Some soldiers now in Afghanistan and Iraq have already begun training on full-spectrum command. And the technology and storylines developed for the simulator are finding their way back into the entertainment industry, popping up in films, TV shows, and video games. So next time you see a big-budget shoot-em-up film, keep an eye out for General Marlach. For B-Side, I'm Gabriel Spitzer in Los Angeles.
0: War is not a game. And no paintball competition or reenactment scenario can prepare any of us for the reality of battle. I said this earlier and I meant it. There is a real war going on much closer to home than Iraq or Afghanistan. The homicide rate in Oakland, California continues to climb. And many of the people who are dying are kids. Youth Radio, a media training organization based in Berkeley, documented the words of young residents in street corner conversations in East Oakland, the neighborhood where much of the violence takes place.
3: I'm here today to tell a story, a twisted story, a ghetto glory. Now, I know you heard of Romeo and Juliet, but I bet you ain't heard of Rome and that and See, the story's a bit different, a bit more explicit. So sad, almost all bad. They young, beautiful, and don't even know. Society tell him to be a thug, they tell her to be a. They victims of the system placed on us years ago. Where are we at right now, Bianca?
4: On 78th Avenue. And can you
3: describe what you see out here? Like
4: liquor stores, nail shops. I don't know, this is like a whole bunch of people socializing. This
3: is your neighborhood?
4: Yeah. I try not to go outside at night. I mean, cause you never know, you might get killed.
3: Let me tell you how Rome and net first met. She was standing at the bus stop, sucking on a lollipop, short skirt, short top. Girl, you need to stop. You wearing summer clothes and it ain't even hot. Net-Net ain't the only one to blame her. Number of things make her do what she do. Her mama wasn't ever really there and her dad died when she was two. Yet still up she grew. And out she grew. Maybe a little too fast cause the drunk man on the corner said damn, girl, look at your ass. And she laughed, not knowing she being disrespected. She look up and see Rome coming from the other direction.
4: When I get off the bus, when I, all I see, the first thing I see is a prostitute in the corner who's pregnant and who's, like, probably 20-something years old. And that's just depressing. I mean, it's like, dang, she has so much, she could do so much more of her life. I mean, if the homicide rate keeps climbing, you just can't, you you um, can't just live, I mean, because it's affecting everybody. I mean, you you never know if that bullet is going to come and hit one of your children. Right now, we're at a point where I don't like my child to be out at night without
6: knowing exactly where she is or picking her up directly from BART or from the place where she was because stray bullets are everywhere. You know, I had a visitor at my home and stray bullets hit the car and, you know, it could have easily been a person. So it's not a very fair situation.
3: Now here come Rome fronting on his cellular phone because his credit got denied when he tried to get it turned on looking dumb, with weed in his socks and cracking his gums. He walked down the street throwing up where he from. He seen net pretend to hang his phone up. He touched his pages like he being blown up. He said, damn, baby girl, what's your name? What's your And Why you got that skirt on? It's only like 40 degrees. She said, please, but she was getting sick, so she sneezed. ha chew. he said, bless you. She said, nah, forget you. You don't know me well enough to be talking about my clothes and all that kind of stuff. My, my bad baby girl I'm I'm just looking out for your health By the way Let me introduce myself My name is Rome Can we chop it up Talk on the phone No Why Why cause you fine And I know you tired Cause all day you have been walking through my mind No he didn't use that tired line But uh, she tripping So you know what she say Ah uh, okay That's so sweet You the man I always wanted to meet My girlfriend and I have only been together For about two or three weeks. We come from such the same background in Oakland. Her mom lives on 94th and I live on uh, my mom lives on 23rd. It was interesting because at the time when we, when we were younger, since I was like more of a, like a square kind of a person um, you know we could have been friends but I also could have been someone that she thought was square. Like I used to carry a briefcase to school and I wanted to be a scientist and I, then I wanted to be a stockbroker um, I wasn't trying to be a thug at all When you were younger, did you used to go
4: outside and play? Yeah. I used to live in the East on the 23rd, East 23rd, and it was just like I played all the time, but I wasn't really aware of things that were happening.
3: Net-net get pregnant. Nine months later, the saddest day of the year, she holding this beautiful baby girl, but her face drops tears as she sings her daughter a sad lullaby song, because Rome died in a drug deal going terribly wrong. You see? Rome died. Never got to see his newborn baby girl's eyes Now he's not there to wipe the tears from Netnet's eyes Netnet puts down the baby, the baby cries Netnet goes in the kitchen and gets a kitchen knife Netnet net says her wrist not once, net says her wrist twice Suicide
4: The only time you talk to your neighbors really is, is like If you see them outside and you say hello and goodnight or whatever You never like talk about real issues, things that are really... Important. It's not always, you can't always like wait around and think that everybody else is going to do it. You need to take some action for yourself. And I think we kind of lost that, like our generation.
3: At 10 years old, the daughter says, Both my parents died. At 13, she curses the parents she never really knew Forget my mama and my daddy, forget him too. And at 16, she's standing at the bus stop, sucking on a lollipop. Short skirt, short top Cause y'all, we need to stop We be wearing summer clothes like it ain't even hot Leaving our problems to be solved by somebody else Then we wonder why history always repeats itself Repeats itself Why history always repeats itself Roman net-nets in 62, 72, 82, 92 And now in 2002 Cause through all the madness We laugh at the little ghetto kids on the bus stop Peace
0: The voices in this piece are Youth Radio's Gerald Ward II, Bianca Yarborough, and her mom, Bridget Taylor. The poet is 19-year-old Ice Life. He performs with Youth Speaks, a poetry project in San Francisco. That's all for this month's edition of B-Side. Our crew this month is Dave Gilson, Lissa Mudd, and Claudine Zapp. Tamara Keith is our senior producer. Our theme music was composed by Dave Kaufman. B-Side will return on August 6th with something we like to call B-Side's end-of-summer potluck. In the meantime, On the Record is back August 20th. I'm Mia Lobel. Thanks for listening.